Welcome back to this week's OIS podcast. COVID-19 highlighted the need for automation in healthcare. Anything to get the job done faster, better, smarter, and cheaper. And from six feet away. When iCare doctors said they loved Adapt DX Pro, but didn't have time to add another step into their practice, Bill McPhee adapted the device so it could run without them. Let's take a listen as Bill tells the story to Dr. Paul Karpecki. Hello, and welcome to the OIS podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Karpecki, practiced in Lexington, Kentucky, and have the honor of getting to be a host of OIS podcasts and the great privilege of being able to interview incredible entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, leaders, and CEOs. And today we have one that might fit all of those, uh, Mr. Uh, Bill McPhee. Bill, I've known for some time and I've had the pleasure of getting to spend time with him. Been fascinated by the fact that he's been through and worked successfully in over six startups to date. He is the CEO of a company called Maculogics. And I really want to, you know, pick uh, Bill's brain really in understanding kind of that process of how do you get successful in startups and how do you create paths in new fields and understanding that the step from innovators to early adapters. We're going to go through all of that today. So it should be a great interview. Bill, thank you for making time in your busy schedule to join us. Oh, Paul, thank you. It's always a thrill. And OIS has uh, been a tremendous uh, asset to our community. So it's always helpful. It's always wonderful to be able to contribute a little bit of, of uh, our history as a company and, and to the extent we can share stories that make each of us better. It's a good thing. That's exactly the theme. So thank you for summing it up so well. Let's get started with for people who don't, don't know you, even going back through the years, but walk me through a little bit of kind of your, your career path, your background, where you grew up. My father used to say that it was confused. I will use eclectic as a more appropriate adjective. But um, I grew up in Montreal, and, um, and so Canadian by birth. So yes, I do play hockey. Um, and um, went to McGill University in Montreal, both for my undergrad. Uh, in, actually, it was a pre-med program. And um, my, my honors thesis in undergrad was um, focal electrical stimulation in the mesencephalon inducing analgesia in rats and cats. So. That was a uh, it was a long time ago in a place far far away. Got accepted to med school and law school. Went to law school, and so um, my mother was not amused by this choice because she always wanted to have a doctor in the family. But um, as the first kid to go to college from our family, it was like a, a pretty big deal. I uh, ended up working uh, in law originally as general counsel for PepsiCo's Canadian operations, and then ultimately ran franchising for Pizza and Taco Bell in Canada. Got recruited to Bain and Company in Boston when Bain was only, I was a 75th employee at Bain, which has now got probably 10,000 alumni at this point. Um, and um, was there for a number of years during its, during its go-go growth years. And uh, from there, I ended up doing a bunch of entrepreneurial stuff, um, small companies usually doing turnaround sometimes, uh, and then got back into the strategy business and uh, under the an organization called Lucas McPhee. And we did a lot of international stuff, mostly in the UK and France. Um, and uh, really what's now most of the European Union, uh, a lot of M&A work, you know, advising on that. And um, as I went through that process, I ended up back in healthcare because one of our biggest clients was uh, the University of Indiana Med School. 
and we help them with their their strategy for managing the integration of the hospitals and the sales and hospitals and growing practices and created the first um, this was just back in the Hillary care days created the first really in a sense a Medicaid HMO system for uh, for Indianapolis and um, built a primary care practice that had at that time probably about 200 180 200 faculty members those were go-go times, pretty exciting. And uh, as I got more back involved in healthcare, I just realized how much I loved it. It's kind of why I applied to med school in the first place. So um, ultimately, my, my wife's American. And so she, uh, as my father also noted, it was a reverse brain drain. I thought getting it was going to be a good idea. So anyway, and it ended up stateside, Boston for 35 years, been married for 43 to the best gal in the world. Two kids, uh, both of them are on the West Coast, both of them are entrepreneurs. My eldest daughter sold her first company before she turned 30. So um, it's uh, the tree uh, is producing a few other apples. Um, and so that's kind of the, the big picture of, of background. And um, But ultimately, I, in, in 99, I started a venture capital firm that was focused on, on imaging, particularly uh, in radiology. We got involved in the venture space. Our big home run was a company called Super Dimension, which was bought by Medtronic's over $300 million um, in those days. It was, and it was a pulmonology navigation system um, that you could basically find uh, cancers, cancers and other nodules in the lungs without having to go transthoracic. You could actually do it up, down the throat and into the bronchus. So it was pretty cool, pretty cool, way advanced stuff in, 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 that, in that time frame. Fascinating. Isn't that neat? And I love how that's passed on to your children and they're all doing great things too. And so there's obviously a lot of lessons that have probably come from that. We'll, we'll definitely want to get into some of those as well, but to kind of start basis of it, you know, for some listeners, we have a nice mix of listeners. We have uh, ECPs, of course, large percentage, we have investors, industry, all of that. Mm -hmm. So for those mm -hmm. who may not be familiar with Maculogics and AdaptDX Pro, for example, can you tell us a little bit about this innovative sure, technology? Sure. technology? So um, Maculogic's roots go back to the PhD thesis of our chief, now our chief technology officer, Greg Jackson, when he was in the University of Alabama. I happened to be on the board of this company uh, because I found it intriguing, but at the time it was um, pretty much a capital equipment company. It's a, it's a very different company now. And what Greg did was he was looking at the impact of aging on vision in particular night vision. And the question that was posed to him by many patients who were coming through his lab was, doctor, I can't see well at night. And, but you tell me I've got 2020 vision, what's going on? It was the beginning of a realization that there was a, uh, a concept of dark adaptation, the speed with which the retina responds to uh, improving or improving acuity in with night vision, that, might have some predictive power in terms of disease progression. Make a very long story short, 42 published peer review papers later, um, it was shown that dark adaptation is in fact a biomarker for the progression of AMD. So the longer it takes you to dark adapt, um, the more progressed your disease is likely to be. It was an extraordinary insight, but an insight does not create a product. It takes a hell of a lot of time, money, and risk taking to do that. So early in the company's genesis, the challenge was how do we create a clinical tool that's automatic 
and measures dark adaptation. And um, from the period of about 2010, 2011, 2012, Greg and a small group of engineers built the prototype, which became what we call the ADAPT-DX, A-D-A-P-T, ADAPT as in darkness and DX as in diagnostic. And it was a 45 pound instrument, looked like a visual field. I mean, it was like Humphrey reborn. Um, and the, the concept was to create as to make this familiar to eye care practitioners as the Humphrey might be, make it as easy to use the whole thing. Um, and like most engineers and scientists, they thought that the core marketing program would be effectively build it and they will come. I mean, it's great technology. It's the best in the world. It's the only dark optometer that measures things automatically. It, it, you know, it's, it's spectacular, right? We develop what's called a rod intercept, which is the amount of time it takes your eyes to dark adapt. Well, of course, everybody thought that the marketing plan was simply going to be getting a deli, you know, those little number of generators in a deli, and then they would just line up and buy. Well, the phones did not ring off the hook, as you can imagine. And um, began to realize that there was a, a real big issue around marketing. And one of the big challenges, I think, for all of us in innovation, in medicine in particular, is that you're always dealing with existing standards of care and, and eventually thinking about a new standard of care. And often the standard of care in some diseases is doing nothing, which sounds bizarre, but we were just talking before, the, before we got on, on live here on the OIS podcast, about how when you were going to school and you were talking about age-related macular degeneration, which by the way, affects 200 million people in the world, 14 million in the US alone. What we discovered was the existing standard of care, there's no really easy way to monitor the progression of this disease, to find it in the first place or monitor it over time. And you were saying, heck, we, you know, we basically say if it's early stage, never mind, late stage, so sad. The anti-VEGF techniques and pharmaceuticals began to give us some hope. But the challenge was, can you get the patient to the right retina specialist for the right injection at the right time when you preserve as much sight as possible? And so what we were trying to do as a company was to figure out how do we play in this space? And as it turns out, ironically, when I first joined the board, my dad was diagnosed with AMD and ultimately was blinded by it, notwithstanding that, and in between appointments with this ophthalmologist, his vision has deteriorated dramatically from about 2040 to almost uh, 2100. And it was extraordinary how quickly it happened. So I have a dog in the fight, of course, um, and that makes me very committed to it. But going back to the story, you know, we're thinking about how do we penetrate, how do we provide better patient care? And the journey is complicated. So we found out that our 45 pound instrument that gets bolted to a table in, you know, an exam room. And Paul, you, you have one of our instruments, one of our mm -hmm. old tabletops. It's a honker. I mean, and the thing about our test is that it requires it be a totally dark room because you are doing dark adaptation. And of course, uh, then you have to have a technician with the patient in the room. The cut point for disease, no disease, about six and a half minutes. Well, how many technicians want to spend the day in the dark? And it was harder for patients. 
people are afraid of the dark sometimes. But practically speaking, it meant that they couldn't do other chess while this was occurring. So this was this this was a big problem. We had a an automated dark adaptometer that could do great things. It didn't mean it was easy to implement. So in 2017, I became CEO of the company. The company was struggling. At, it was really struggling with commercialization. We turned a lot of that around. We had this initial technology, which was, as I say, kind of a Humphrey lookalike, but in this, instead of glaucoma, we were looking at an AMD. And I said to him, I said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this 45 pound instrument. I want you to shrink it to one pound and put it on people's heads. I want you to do it in a way that they can have a private dark room because we'll put eye cups on it. And guess what? They won't need to be in the darkness. And that means you can test people anywhere, anytime. And so what happened was, and I don't know whether the camera will pick this up, but this is the result of roughly $10 million of effort over about two to three years, um, the Adaptex Pro. It's head-mounted, mobile. Um, it is totally mobile. You can test patients in a nursing home or an assisted living community. Um, during COVID, we had people testing people in the front seat of their cars when they were using the parking lot as a reception area. So all of a sudden, we began, we just changed the whole paradigm. And I think that's part of what has to happen is as we listen to our customers, they said, look at this big honking tabletop. It's really hard for us to implement in our practice. And so as we listen to folks, and it's hard to listen when it's your big honking piece of equipment because you love it, right? You're proud of it. And I said to my guys, I said, okay, we're going to toss this thing up. We're going to start over. We're going to take what we know about the physics and dark adaptation, apply that intellectual property, and we're going to create this brand new head-mounted technology. But that's not enough. We needed to also have something that offset the reality that in most practices, staffing is at a premium. So we incorporated for the first time, I believe, in ophthalmology and optometry, an artificial intelligence-based test agent called FIA. And FIA does all the testing. Once the patient puts the unit on their head, FIA takes over the entire test. And the first thing, of course, Paul, you did, and I remember this very clearly, was you closed your eyes so that you could see whether you could fake out FIA. And she was gently nudging you not to be an idiot. Um, and you started laughing. I remember this. That's and right. so um, we created and incorporated artificial intelligence into the testing process. Because practically speaking, as optometry, it takes its rightful place as managing most of primary eye care in this country, process automation is gonna be critical because productivity is gonna be a problem. And look at the issues we're facing as a country on staffing generally, never mind just in technicians and folks in the practice. So we were a little bit prescient perhaps, but COVID basically proved to all of us the importance of being able to do things faster, better, smarter, cheaper. And that's what we created. It's fascinating. Incredible, really. And to do it that quickly and frankly, quite lean, such a lean approach. If you think about yeah. how much would have to go into, I mean, how many parts would be in a device? So we have 172 unique parts. This is not a VR head, a virtual reality headset or something like that. The, the thing about man looking for, as you, as you know so well, we're looking at a macular disease. And so the the instrument has to focus on each pupil independently. And so within this instrument are four servo motors managing a whole family of optics 
to make sure that we have the right presentation to the patient to test the patient and that there isn't any, any errors. It's really complicated technology. And we were able, I mean, when I first became CEO in 2017, we had 12 people in the company. You know, now we're shy of, uh, of 80. And we built an engineering team. We had a, we, we invested in a lot of outside consultants and engineering consultants. But I spent a lot of time on the design side. Um, I had been CEO of a company called eSight before this that built electronic eyewear to let legally blind people see again. And so I had spent a lot of time with a couple of design firms on the West Coast. And how do you make something fit on someone's head that's comfortable, that doesn't make them feel claustrophobic or in a cage? It's very complicated. The human dynamics and the, and the ergonomics of it are very critical. And one of the things, Paul, you and I were talking about when we were going through this process was, you know, when you think about someone, my mother-in-law, for example, who was almost 98, sticking her chin out and getting her forehead firmly against that, that, that strap mm-hmm. and holding it is really hard. With our technology, she can sit in a lazy boy and put her head back. And, you know, it's, it's a whole different experience. So I think from a practical point of view, the big lesson here is what did we learn from our customers? Did we listen to our customers? And we worked really hard to do that. But there were some fundamental things that I did not really understand clearly enough in, in this entire process. And I think you were part of um, our advisory board meeting, I think it was in 2020 in January, this before, just before COVID. Yep. We were up in, in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania at our headquarters. And what I started to hear from people was how hard things are to implement in practices. And I'm going, come on, guys, you guys are all smart. You're all capable. What? What? And as we listened more, we began, I I had learned that this was going to be really hard. And again, blindness created by, this is the greatest technology in the world, right? So build it and they will come. Very dangerous. So what I discovered was the single biggest impediment to adoption was not the technology per se. We had to create awareness of the relationship between dark adaptation and AMD, of course. Now it's uh, 88% of ODs uh, are aware of that relationship. We, we, we had 20,000 ODs go through continuing education last year. But even though we have a thousand of units in the marketplace today in practices, the real challenge was implementation in the practice. Setting aside COVID and all the staffing problems, it was how do I incorporate a new test for a disease I historically have not managed into a practice that's short-staffed or chronically understaffed? And so FIA was part of the solution because we didn't have to have a, while the test is being done, a, a technician can do other things like in, enter data into the HR, sanitize the, the, next, the equipment for the next patient, you know, that kind of stuff. But we had to create, we, we had to go out and talk to practices that were just doing a lot, finding a lot of A and B in their practices. 30% of their patients over the age of 50 were failing. And we had to learn what it would take to implement. I, I would argue, and I think this is important for the entrepreneurs in the audience, 
that the minimally viable product was so fond of talking about me in the old days as a, as a venture capitalist or as an angel investor, that minimally viable product also includes implementation. So we did something radically different. We actually went out and talked to the customers, found out how they did, how our best 20% used the technology. And then we codified it into a program. And I think the thing that was most surprising to us was that um, some of the lessons were simple, but not simplistic. So for example, in a, in a practice which skews more geriatric than not, the scheduling is incredibly important about how many, you, you don't want three 85 year olds back to back or using walkers because of what it does to, to the lane, right? So we began to understand how we had to fit this in. Oh, you want to use this after an Optimap. There's an Optimap cause a bleaching problem with our technology because you have to have your retina pretty much unbleached at that point before we do the bleaching with our technology. Oh, we can fit that in now. And so we've, it's been a learning process as we collaborated with you and, and, and now almost 850 physicians who use our technology across the country. Phenomenal. I love how the, the granularity of what you got to to really figure it out. And I think those are the steps that now sound so obvious when you hear it. Like, well, why would really you have success? But it's not something you inherently think about. And, and what a difference. And now you've had over a million diagnostic tests completed. Yeah, we'll hit a million uh, in the first quarter. In the first Next quarter. Next year, wow. yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, I have technology. I you know, found it to be incredibly helpful. I love the mobility of it. We got three offices I could rotate it through. They all do exactly with it. But I think the other thing that we did, which was pioneering, was we also moved to a subscription model. One of the things that's associated with a head-mounted technology is you've got this piece of equipment is someone going to drop it? And we designed it to be able to be dropped from nine feet and survive. But it's not something you encourage your staff to do. It's not meant to be a football in the office. And practically, what we said was, there's a couple of things docs really get concerned about. One is obsolescence protection. One is downtime. And in contrast to every piece of diagnostic equipment, maybe except for the tone pad, this is not bolted to a table. This is in the hands of technicians and patients. What's the odds of it falling? We started talking about that, and then we also learned that our docs wanted some time to get the, the instrument in their practice incorporated, and particularly before we had our AMD Excellence Program or Implementation Program uh, kind of crystallized. They wanted some time to get this in the practice. So we created a subscription model where we effectively guarantee 100% uptime. The big difference between shipping a 45-pound instrument that has to sit on a pallet in order not to be disturbed and this instrument is, this thing can go in a FedEx box and I can have it to you tomorrow morning. So if one of your techs drops it, all they do is they call our service desk and we get a new one so that you're not, you're not down. You don't have to reschedule a whole bunch of patients. You're not out for two weeks for a service. And we don't care what happened to it. If you have one of our subscription agreements, it's kind of like my iPhone. It's like, you know, it's, uh, it's Apple Care. And, you know, I crack my screen, I don't know, probably quarterly. Um, and I get a new one the next day. And so um, that's what we wanted. We were trying to take business to consumer concepts of ease of use, innovation, really 100% uptime, if you will, because all of us are accustomed to having, it, whether it's Amazon or Apple, I mean, we're used to having it now. And that 
the nice part about this technology is that it can be FedExed. And so I can get you something in 24 hours. That changed the nature of customer service. It also is much, much cheaper. And I don't have to have a fleet of remote technicians in the field to service equipment because I just replace it. It's much more cost effective. That's brilliant. A really whole different way of looking at it. So one of the interesting areas that I've always been fascinated are uh, by companies that have come into a field perhaps within Mm -hmm. eye care, such as EMD. And as I mentioned, you mentioned earlier, you know, when I went through school, we told patients, you know, you either had the the bad kind or the really bad kind, you know, one was slow, one was going to be blinding the wet form. And we really didn't think of anything. We, you know, eventually we got to find, okay, take a vitamin, Narrative two formula, and that was it. How how much your time has to be spent in educating about the technology compared to educating about the ability to impact this disease state, which we can today in many ways, everything from what we prescribe and vitamins to the wet AMD treatments and monitoring Mm -hmm. appropriately, um, all the way through to even, you know, how what blue blocking some glasses, certain vitamins at different stages of the disease. And now we're having the new year some injectable treatments for geographic atrophy. So obviously we can have a huge impact on this disease state, but I don't think that was inherent to doctors. So here mm-hmm. you, you, you know, if you can't treat it, why would you test it? Now that we know we can treat it, we, we see this technology is valuable, can really manage this disease state without it. But how much of a work was it in educating <laughs> it was, on that part? You know, the legend of Sisyphus rolling the rock uphill. Um, <laughs> I think this is a challenge for everyone who is introducing new technologies and new way of managing a chronic disease in particular. And I mean, you were trained the way you were trained because at the time there weren't a lot of options. And let's face it, diagnosing AMD based on a Beckman classification of Drusen size, location, color is a structural assessment that's hard. It takes a long time, it takes great training, you have to be really looking for it, and it's really hard to do. I mean, in our clinical trial, we asked for, this is 380 patients that were referred to us by, into the trial by optimo- optometrists and ophthalmologists, 50% each. And we told them, send us patients who don't have AMD because we want to follow them for the next three years. And send us your retinal imaging so that a retina panel can review the data. This is published in JAMA in, in, in 2019. of these patients had visible EMD. A third of that 25%, frankly, were in serious yogurt. And so even in a situation where really smart, capable people are looking for this disease, it's really hard to find. Yeah. So, um, and it, it speaks to the issue of patients getting to the retinal specialist at a point in time when they've lost too much sight. I think that's a, that's a that's been the big issue. Or ODs getting a phone call from a retinal specialist saying, "There's nothing wrong with this patient. They're here too early." So here's something that I think your listeners, again, who are thinking about technology introduction, need to consider. At least it's the lessons I've learned at, at, at considerable expense, I might add. And that is, you got to do a lot of customer research. We went out in 2017, the awareness between of dark adaptation and its relationship as a biomarker to AMD uh, was in the order of 15 to 20% of optometry, mostly early adopters. Mm. Today it's 88%, but it's five years later. 
And we've spent, um, you know, a small fortune educating docs, educating the industry. And um, it's not like you do it once and it's done because folks, you know, were trained as you were really not to pay a lot of attention to this disease. So it's, it's, a, it's a battle. But who manages all the glaucoma in the country? ODs. Who's managing diabetic retinopathy? ODs. Why aren't they managing AMD? And that was kind of our battle cry. We ended up doing a ton of customer research. And what we discovered was in the adoption cycle of all technologies, there's the early adopters who will put up with, you know, like me, the early Bluetooth things that never really worked very well. And, you know, how many of us have a drawer full of gadgets we bought that really weren't ready for prime time? And those are early adopters. And then they were very fond of our tabletop equipment. But the more conservative early majority, when you cross the proverbial chasm in technology terms, and you begin thinking about crossing that chasm, you begin to realize the messaging is very different. So for example, folks like you, Paul, you were really keen on managing patients. You wanted them to stop smoking, have adopt a Mediterranean diet. It was really a wellness approach. And you and, and many of your colleagues were saying, hey, if an error's formulation is good for intermediate stage disease, maybe I give, suggest the patients take it earlier. So it was much more of an inclusive model, it was a wellness model, but it was about managing the patient's health and buying them time as the disease progressed. The early majority feels a little bit differently. What we learned, and this is a minor, but very important difference, manage if you're early adopters, monitor if you're in the early majority. Because frankly, for a lot of physicians, it's about watchful waiting and making sure they get the patient to the right referral point at the right time. And everyone has a point of view about errors that we've had these, how many debates have we had about this over the years? Um, but fundamentally, you want to preserve as much sight as possible. And to do that, you need to monitor the disease progression. The only way you can do that is using a dark optometer because we generate the rod intercept. It gives you a number. A change in that rod intercept is not a good thing and therefore might mean a more frequent a more frequent checkup instead of every six months, perhaps quarterly. So it's a different model. But again, when you go and talk to the early majority, if you talk to them about management, well, I don't really know. I don't want to sell nutraceuticals, you know, I mean, but I do want to know how my patients are doing. I mean, there is this very kind of Joan of Arc, save their souls sort of approach in optometry to doing right by patients. And so we learned that the message that worked for early adopters wasn't the same message for the early majority. And that's forced us to rethink our marketing. It's forced us to rethink um, how we, how we work with, with um, physicians after the fact. Um, and it's a really critical element of what we're doing. That's brilliant. And you know, it, this is the early majority is such a huge group. And but you're yeah. right, we monitored in different ways. This can be good for everybody though, because if you're monitoring, you know, more now at this stage, and this is the larger group of primary eye care providers, you're gonna be when you see that change in the rod intercept, you're gonna bring the patient in now, maybe every yeah. three months. That's really the biggest indicator of who preserves the vision. Yeah. how quickly they're diagnosed before they could go wet or in the future, even some dry, 
treatment. And I, I think it's got to be incredibly frustrating to be to looking to, for a patient to arrive with 2080, 2100, 2200 vision. And knowing if you'd had them three months earlier, you might have done something, you, they might have had better vision. And as I watched my dad lose his sight and the impact it had on my mom as a caregiver, mm-hmm. the quality of life just, just is the deterioration is staggering. You know, I mean, talking about a Canadian guy who can't watch a hockey game my, <laughs> or watch curling with my dad's favorite sport. But yeah, it's a big deal. So as we've looked at this, but the other aspect of this, and this is a huge shift, is because our technology is now cloud mediated, we can update it over the web. We can monitor it over the web. And so we just did an update earlier in the year. Thea now speaks eight languages. So if you have a practice which skews Hispanic, for example, and you have a bunch of folks, perhaps English is not their first language. Why not do the test in Spanish? And if you have Spanish-speaking staff, that's not a problem. But if you have English-speaking staff, Thea will talk to them in English and speak to the patient in Spanish. Wow. Yeah. So we're now, you know, we did this all over through the cloud. It's all cloud-mediated. The other thing that happens in our in our AMD Excellence Program is that we monitor the instruments from afar. You know, when you get on a jet en- a plane today, that jet engine, let's say it's a GE or Rolls-Royce engine, they're monitoring what's working, what's not working, what maintenance issues there might be, yada, yada, in real time, right? They yep. got a satellite, everything gets there. So we do the same thing. And we also monitor and work with our, our physician partners to say, hey, you were doing, last month you did 45 tests, this month you're doing 15, what happened? Is it not working? Did it break? Did you lose staff? You know, was it a scheduling issue? And so we get a red flag system that helps practices because we can say to them, hey, this is what we've seen sometimes in other practices. Is this what's happening to you? And so we can take kind of the learning of hundreds of practices and soon to be thousands of practices and develop best practice so we can say, this is what works for a practice of your type, your size, and this kind of location. And so there's a huge shift when you begin to think about mobile technology, cloud-mediated, AI-enabled, and most important, implemented in a practice in a way that works for that practice. And that is the goal. It's, and that, I think the hard part for most of us entrepreneurs to learn is the technology is just simply the price of admission. Yeah. But the real show is after you sell the unit to the physician because they don't have time to figure out how this is going to work in their practice. They're incredibly busy. I mean, think of your day. And they just want to know it's going to work. And that's our job. So as an industry, I think I can say with confidence that we probably have the highest net promoter scores for customer service because you call us and you say, um, this doesn't work. Um, my head mounted instrument is not working. The pro is not working. I'll have you up and running in 24 hours. No questions asked because it's part of your subscription. Our job is to keep you up and running and to provide you a best practice. That's what we have this thing called AMD Academy. Let me give you an example of that. So 
The technicians are critical. Training technicians, finding time to train technicians. It's so hard on a busy, busy, busy practice, particularly now that we're all short-staffed. So we create a series of two-minute vignettes, little video clips on a YouTube-type apparatus. You can watch it on your iPhone to train people. Because, you know, if you have a pay, uh, your, your technician who typically does this kind of testing out sick, well, some of the other techs may not have been doing this a lot. How do they know what to do? So we created these online tools. And then what we also realized, and that you were part of the advisory board, Paul, that gave us this terrific and important advice, which was it's about peer-to-peer -peer activity. And it's not just physician to physician. That's critical. But it's also tech to tech. And it's, it's come to our attention that, you know, FEA, who's our artificial intelligence, the technicians do not refer to our product as the AdaptiX Pro, much, not much of the consternation of my marketing chief. They call it FEA. And they plan the day as they look at which tests are being done with which patients in what period of time and where, as though FEA is in the staff meeting in the morning. And so we're beginning to see the mix of things we take for granted of I can order anything from Amazon and have it in an hour, depending on the city you're in. Well, we're taking that basic concept and putting it into play in optometry and then ultimately in ophthalmology. It's fantastic. What an amazing interview. So uh, first, close here by talking a little bit about where you're at today in terms of yeah. the company. I think are you in a fundraising stage? And I mean, obviously seeing the growth and what you've learned and the impact and even my own yeah experience with this. This is a very exciting company. So tell us a little bit about where you are right now and, and where, in fact, the listeners might be able to help. Well, we're at this point in time, like so many people, we're coping with, you know, is this a new normal post-COVID, pre-COVID, new COVID, Delta, Omega? I don't know. All I know for sure is that it's had a material impact on uh, practices out there, um, our customers. And it's had, a, a, obviously, a material impact on our economy. So we're out raising uh, $30 million um, to continue the growth of the company. COVID's probably pushed us back 18 to 24 months, just, just because, I mean, jobs in survey, 46% of ODs did not want to see a sales rep. I mean, they were already becoming infected or infecting their staff. And I, I perfectly understand that. But at the same time, it impacted us incredibly. Um, so as we've gone through this period of time, we need a little more dough to get us over the hump, if you will, into becoming uh, a profitable company. And I think the other aspect is, is that, you know, we have learned, um, we have a thousand of our, of our instruments currently in practices out there. One of the things we want to spend money on is how to do a better job supporting people in the field supporting our customers, improving our customer service, even though it's, it's, it's good, it can always be better. The other area of spending money is uh, looking at new innovations. Where, what can we do to make this instrument and the management and, or monitoring of AMD faster, better, smarter, less expensive, less impactful on flow in the practice, that kind of stuff. One of the things I'm very much looking forward to is being able to think about how do we think about um, helping physicians like you to monitor a patient over time so that you can just pull it up, you know, 
my iPhone tells me how many exercise sessions I've missed. It's, it it kind of reminds me of those more often than, than the, the exercise sessions I've actually executed. And I think uh, Apple's got it in for me, but we want to be able to, for you to be able to say, Mrs. Smith, I just want to show you that with what you've done, you know, you stopped smoking and your rod intercept is flat for the last two years. That's the kind of information you don't want to have to dig around with EHR. You don't want to have to have, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's how do we make this impactful for you? How do we make this impactful for your patients? How do we help you create a stickier practice with better technology and better customer and better emphasis on customer and patient satisfaction? And I think that's where I'd like to spend some time because optometry in my view, has to become the home of primary eye care in the United States. The role, there's not enough ophthalmologists. There's just not, just aren't enough. And we're, we have an aging country. There are, there are 14 million people with AMD today in the US. By 2050, we'll be 22 million. Who's going to take care of all these people? And so we've got to figure out how this technology and the way smart folks practice to figure out how we're going to absorb the demand for service. How are we going to make that happen in a world of increasingly more common chronic diseases as we grow older? So that's kind of the mission here. And I think for the entrepreneurs out there, it's really a question about working with physicians and saying, guys, you, you guys are brilliant at what you do. How do we help you do it faster, better, smarter, cheaper? Because you know what you want to do with your patients and how to do it. It's our job as innovators to say, what if we did it a little bit this way? And you go, no, 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 that was really dumb. Or, well, that's not a bad idea. And I think that's going to be the challenge in the future is how process automation improves flow through and practices and improves patient satisfaction and eliminates the barrier of communication between patients and physicians. And we need to be a part of that solution rather than being part of the, uh, I would argue in some cases, instruments can get in the way. But I, I will leave that to smarter people than me to have a discussion about. That's terrific. Certainly fantastic interview, incredible number of insights for whether you're a CEO or on the way to it or in the organization, whether you're a physician, even understanding the big picture and, and even the nuance of how you change marketing messages as you go through the different stages of each doctor in terms of how they look at things, whether they are an innovator or early adopter or early majority. And, and so it is fascinating to see that. And then of course, very exciting company with great growth prospects. And I think the future is only brighter, especially as there becomes more and more treatments for macular degeneration. We need to identify yeah sooner prevent blindness. Be more well, active. the geographic atrophy area looks like it's burgeoning, you know, and it's inevitable that we'll see something for, for dry AMD at some point in the cycle. But it's interesting, Paul, you were talking to me earlier about raising money. And, you know, in 2018, we brought uh, Vivo Capital in as our lead investor, backing up um, Rush Ventures, which had been our in our in funding our company for now for now seven years but in 2018 we went to raise money we didn't have the adaptex pro we um at that point in time we still hadn't proven that we knew how to help docs implement this we didn't have as much knowledge about the needs of physicians by segment in terms of adoption curves 
And now as we go out to raise money, it's a growth stage company rather than an early stage company. I mean, I had, when I really, my last time, maybe we had 25 people. And now, you know, during COVID, we built a factory, we staffed it. It's ISO 1345 certified, which to folks in the audience, that's like the pinnacle of quality. And um, we've, we've now sold in the last, uh, what, in the middle of COVID in the last year, about 500 practices now have our AdaptDX Pro, our newest head-mounted artificial intelligence-driven technology. So it changes and it's really fast. I guess it seems fast to me. I would like it to be faster. Um, and I think as we talk to your audience, a big lesson is it always takes longer. It always costs more money. And there's always surprises. And last but not least, no, we didn't figure out there was going to be a pandemic and what that was going to do to us in the process. So, but thank you for the time today. It's been very helpful to, to I, you, you took me down some, some memories that I had totally forgotten about as we evolved as a company. Awesome. Well, you've taken us through a lot of great insights. So thank you for that. How can our audience, uh, people who are intrigued or even investors get in touch with you? So, so it's B McPhee, M-C-P-H-E-E at um, maculogics.com uh, or on LinkedIn. Just look up Bill McPhee and or just go up to our website, Maculogics, all the contact information is there. Um, delighted uh, as people might want to join our, you know, our vision is to eliminate blindness caused by AMD. That's what we're trying to do. We don't have the, we don't have a cure, but my goodness, we can certainly preserve an awful lot of sight for an awful lot of people. Thank you. Great interview, Bill. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Paul. Take care now. You Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS Podcast. Listen in next week when we chat with BVI Medical's Shervin Karanji. And don't forget to subscribe to our iTunes channel so you don't miss an insight. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at OIS.net.